You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And uh, joining me as usual is ITK principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. I am well, thanks, Giles, even in this hot weather in Sydney. And great to have you uh, back on air again uh, after a week's absence. And we have a great interview this week talking about what you have said many times is the most, uh, one of the most exciting things going on in uh, this decarbonisation of Australia's electricity grid, and that is batteries. <laughs> batteries, big batteries, indeed. Um, so RMI, which is the um, institute, um, the uh, formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, based in Colorado, I think it is, um, David, um, one of the foremost think tanks on re- all things renewables, and you scored an interview um, following the release of a report. Just give us a brief introduction and let's get straight into it. Uh, we I, we interviewed uh, Dan Walter, who is the uh, one of the leads at RMI, a 600 and something person organisation, as Dan mentions, and they've been releasing a series of reports on exponential growth. Uh, and the one that caught my eye was the Exchange Batteries. Um, and uh, without more ado, here's Dan. Dan Walter, principal of the strategy team at RMI, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit, RMI, which is the Rocky Mountains Institute. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the organisation, what its uh, role in life is, and perhaps um, um, how, how how big it is, and uh, basically how it's funded? Yeah, so the Rocky Mountain Institute is a, is a, an independent, non-partisan think tank on uh, on energy. Founded in uh, 1983, uh, we uh, we focus on the the big energy topics uh, of the times. Uh, which means that for the past decades, we've mainly focused on decarbonization and thinking through how to turn from uh, the current trajectory into a 1.5 degree uh, a pathway. We do that really through a range of activities, um, helping sort of from boiler room to boardroom and uh, help people make the right decisions. So that means that when we go sort of boots on the ground, helping actually like working with truckers, helping them understand how tricky is it to actually adopt EVs? How tricky is it to actually change your logistic systems to be more efficient? All the way up to boardroom conversations or government conversation on like what is like the 10 20 30 year outlook on the energy transition and what are the strategic uh, uh choices to make over the next decades we are about uh 650 700 people uh growing uh, have grown rapidly as the energy transition accelerated so did we uh and uh, we're we're uh, we've gone also gone pretty much global so we are in uh, in the us that's that's our home base uh, in colorado uh, I myself in in New York, as are, as are many of my colleagues, uh, but we we are also in China and in India, and and we sit a little bit all over the world. Wow, that's uh, quite a lot bigger than uh, I had imagined. And I think um, uh, let me ask a, a somewhat a slightly personal question: How does someone with a with a with a PhD in nuclear energy um, uh, and a background at previously at McKinsey's end up writing uh, a, a very interesting report about batteries? <laughs> Uh, it's it's yeah it's a master's by the way but yeah indeed it's uh, I uh, I think it's um, 
I think the, 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 the core tenet of what we're building in RMI is this idea that we have a generality in these, these different technologies as they scale, right? So these, these learning curves, these scaling curves, I'm sure also your, your listeners are, are very familiar from, from your previous podcast. There's a generality in that. And I think that's very much as, 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 as we work in the energy sector and in the energy industry, what we see is that in this generality, it's not so much the background uh, of people that uh, that determines their their input, but it's really their uh, understanding and their sort of the the ability to have what I think our founder Amory called the, the beginner's mindset to grasp ideas and and run with it um, that uh, that determines that. So I think um, for me it's uh, for me it was I started uh, indeed uh, a while back at McKinsey where I did a lot of energy transition work. So I was part of the McKinsey sustainability practice, uh, and I joined about a year ago in uh, in uh, in RMI. But it's uh, yeah, it was a quite a logical continuation. And of course, this discussion is going to be about batteries, but here in Australia, we have a, a political uh, discussion about nuclear energy. Uh, I just wondered broadly, when you look at the world or from RMI's perspective, do you have uh, any quick thoughts about the future role of nuclear energy? So I think nuclear energy is, I think, is really two topics uh, the way I see it. It's it's existing nuclear and new nuclear, and they're quite distinct. Uh, I think very few people would disagree that continuing existing nuclear for as long as we can is a, is a really good idea. Um, it's already built. The costs are already sunk. The short-run marginal costs are low, so you can keep uh, keep the plants running. Uh, new nuclear is a different ballgame. It really depends on location, cost-benefit analyses. And I think, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this, I suppose, as we talk about batteries in the energy system as well. Um, it's not so much a conversation of nuclear versus coal and gas, but it's increasingly a story of nuclear versus other, uh, other power sources, and particularly wind and solar uh, backed up by batteries. Uh, and I think in that equation, we increasingly see the competitiveness of uh, solar and wind combined with batteries going up, which, of course, like lessens the, the opportunity for nuclear. Uh, and indeed, in, in Australia, my own view often expressed here and in many other places is that we don't have much of a role for nuclear when I look at uh, the economics. But let's talk about uh, your battery uh, uh, X report, of which, which you're the lead author. Um, perhaps I'll just start by asking a really simple question. What was the main thing that you personally learnt from writing that report? Well, the numbers are shocking, right? I think that that's, I think, the, 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 simple, the simple truth of it is, is when you look at the latest numbers coming out of the battery industry, you're just, you're just incredibly surprised. And I, I mean, I've, I've been uh, in the energy industry for a while now and keeping track of batteries and EV growth and, and uh, power uh, flexibility growth for quite a while. Um, but you keep getting surprised. I mean, uh, so there are parts of the uh, battery, uh, the parts of the value chain that are scaling up so rapidly that even after a few weeks, your your knowledge is outdated. I think to some extent, some of the pieces in the report with the latest announcements that we're hearing of battery cost reduction in mid-year going to $56 per kilowatt hour, et cetera, are already, uh, are already outdated before you know it. So just sh seeing the sheer shift in numbers and how quickly that goes and how within six months, within 12 months, the numbers are outdated. I think surprised us when we wrote the reports, like already, like only having read about it a year ago, how, how much uh, uh, how much it was updated since then. But also on top of that, um, really the continuing uh, uh, the continuing updating of the numbers right uh, after we published the report was also quite uh, quite a shock. So we, we keep getting surprised, I suppose, with this. Yeah, yes, and so uh, I guess uh, the report looks at the growth in batteries and takes a more holistic view by looking beyond 
lithium batteries, back to the whole history of batteries. And um, I, I guess uh, one of the big things in all of this renewable industry is learning rate effects. Uh, now, you talk in your report about rights law, but I understand it more broadly to be that whatever you do, there is a kind of a learning rate which is that for a doubling of the installed base, uh, then um, the unit cost will reduce. What, what, what uh, by some fraction, typically between 10 and 25%. And this, wouldn't, this would apply to like heart transplants uh, or certainly solar costs or wind costs or battery costs. And um, if we just look at utility uh, lithium batteries, then you would make an argument that the installed global capacity is still very low. And so you can have a lot of doublings in a short space of time uh, and get a lot of cost reduction. Or you could take a broader view uh, and look at the whole battery history, and in which case the doubling will be slower, but the cost reduction uh, coefficient may be larger. Could, <laughs> this is a sort of complex question that gets away from the point to some extent, but I'd just be interested in your thoughts about it. No, I think so. In our in, in the, the way that we view it, right, is if we want to make predictions about what's to come for the next uh, 30 years, uh, we need to also look back at least 30 years to get a good sense of the trends, right? I think it's it's a it's a key uh, it's a key uh, uh, mistake that is I think made in energy outlooks is just looking at like today's numbers forecasting. You might take a few years of history there and and forecast based on that. So we tend to really dive deeper into the industry and really see where did where did the trends actually come from, where are the origins? And for batteries, it's it's quite obvious, right? It's it started with camcorders in uh, in Japan. And it really started steamrolling and, and this, this battery domino effect that we'll get to later started, started really in, in this sector. And it's also from the scale and the ancillary benefits of the tech industry and the, and the, the rise of the, the iPhone and the, the smartphone and the laptop and all of these technologies that scaled up batteries that we're really benefiting from now in the EV sector. So I think that link is quite important, uh, was quite important also for us to make because it, it makes very clear that uh, to some extent also the battery story is, is one of, of, of uh, digital tech. And, uh, and the tech industry uh, growing in the 90s, scaling up battery production, scaling also the way the way to make batteries, right? The way of production, those production methods in, in clean, sterile labs. Uh, it's, it's really like all high-tech approaches. And that really was the, the, the foundational spark that triggered uh, rapid battery growth for EVs and et cetera. Indeed it did. And perhaps we should talk, uh, get some baseline numbers here uh, how large is the, uh, we should probably think about the battery industry in terms of gigawatt hours of installed capacity. Um, do you have a number off the top of your head for that? So our annual sales at the moment are about a terawatt hour per, per year and uh, installed capacity is a, is a, a multiple of that. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but we're, we're talking about really- a, a terawatt hour, let's talk about that. And of that, um, how much is EVs, how much is utility storage, and how much is the rest of the industry? I mean, if we'd gone back five years, it would nearly have all have been the rest of the industry, if I can took it that way. But now, because of the greater size of uh, utility batteries, uh, stationary storage, uh, and, and EV batteries in particular, the numbers have switched very much that way, haven't they? Exactly. Yes, I think if so, if we only look, uh, you know, was it eight years ago, nine years ago, um, around 2016, 2017, half of the battery demand globally still comes from ele consumer electronics. It really is a consumer electronics driven business driven by like smaller batteries, small electronics. 
that's really around the time when we see the first tipping points happening around passenger EV car really rapidly picking up. Um, so from that point onwards, I think today, I think it's about two thirds of, uh, of battery demand going into passenger EV cars, maybe slightly under that, but something like that. Uh, and then stationary storage, uh, surprisingly, really rapidly picking up also in the last couple of years. Stationary storage in the past year almost being as big as consumer electronics altogether. Um, uh, so that's it's a really rapid, uh, rapid exponential pickup that we see there. So I think today consumer electronics is uh, completely dwarfed by the other sectors, uh, which is a complete reversal compared to, say, 10 years ago. And uh, if we get to the conclusions first, and you'll excuse me for because I have an investment back, banking background in research and in our morning meeting, if you couldn't get to an interesting conclusion in the first 10 seconds of your conversation, you might as well not start. <laughs> um, uh, where do you, if we talk about one terawatt hour per year at the moment, where do you think we will be in five and 10 years time? So one is going to turn into a roughly 10 terawatt hours by 2030. Uh, exponential, exponential growth is, is set to continue and then even, uh, even accelerate in, uh, in large parts of the world, which means that basically this entire industry is going to continue this, this almost like insane roller coaster ride that it has been on over the past, uh, over the past seven years. And we're going to continue that for, for, another, uh, for seven more. That means incredible, incredibly rapid scale up of EVs. So that means that you're reaching EVs somewhere between 70 and 90% of sales will be EV. That means that most, uh, that the majority of trucking, uh, new trucks that are being sold in the trucking sector will be EV. That means that most of the flexibility provided on uh, grids globally uh, will come from uh, stationary storage. So it's a very, uh, it's a very rapid transition. Um, it will, by our estimations, uh, in the in the long term put something like 60% of fossil fuel uh, demand at risk. It's, it's the majority of the pathway towards net zero by 2050 is, is enabled by batteries in some shape or form, either directly through EVs or by empowering renewables to actually be backed up and, and challenge uh, conventional fossil generation sources. And so we haven't uh, talked, the learning rate is an empirical kind of thing. You just observe it and it's so widely observed that uh, academics are, are happy to um, agree that it's a thing. But in every individual uh, industry or technology or practice, it's kind of there are different drivers. Within the uh, battery industry, what, what are the drivers of cost down? They can be like just basically scale or they can be uh, scientific breakthroughs like energy density. What do you think of the drivers? So one of the drivers that we, we highlight in the report uh, is, is energy density as a, as a big one. Of course, if you need half the materials to make the battery, you have half the procurement cost. So that, that, that helps a lot. And, and we see also a learning effect uh, on the energy density of the batteries. Uh, batteries getting denser and denser over time. Let, let's, just, let's just talk about, sorry, uh, what is energy density uh, sorry, in a, yes. to a layman? Yeah, let, let, me, let me go into that. So energy density is basically how much energy you can pack in a kilogram of a, of a battery. Uh, it's a metric that is very essential for the success of batteries uh, uh, in, in the energy system. In fact, I mean, way back in 1900, it was the battery cars he here in New York that, uh, that failed to pick up because they didn't have the right range, right? The, the heavier battery is, the harder it is to actually have a longer driving range because you need to carry all that heavy battery weight with you. Um, so it was originally what, what, what kind of killed the battery here in, in New York uh, originally in the, in the first, uh, first instance uh, 100 years ago. Um, it, it kind of stagnated this, this battery energy density metric for a good 18, 19 years since 1900. 
Um, but then innovation picked up and we've really seen almost an exponential growth and in increase of battery energy density, which means that if you applied for an EV, you can have a, a car that drives much further. That means if you applied in uh, originally in the 90s as a camcorder, you have a much lighter device with which you can record video. It means that we have iPhones that are not incredibly heavy, like the original laptop, uh, laptop size things that people had to log around to, 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 to call people. Um, so battery energy density is an inc incredibly uh, important metric. We, we kind of label it as one of the key metrics of quality going up of these batteries, right? We can do more and more with them. And that's been also a main driver. So it's been a main driver of unlocking new applications for batteries. I mean, in the, in the 70s, batteries were just too heavy for certain applications like long haul trucking, like cars, like uh, aviation even, uh, what we're seeing picking up right now. Um, so they were basically too heavy for that. But as this energy density started to increase, of course, it, it lowered cost, and that, that's that's the learning effect that you're talking about of the cost uh, cost decrease. But it also unlocked more applications. So as the energy density started rising over time, it actually started to unlock well first two and three wheelers, like smaller vehicles, smaller cars, uh, and we're now seeing very decidedly the the heavy duty trucking sector switching towards uh, towards hydrogen being most competitive. And uh, we we don't find it impossible uh, to see a significant uptake also of electric aviation and electric shipping. Uh, over the coming decades uh yes so um so and if we get into so that i see a lot of value in looking back at the longer term but i also think when you do that you kind of sometimes take your eye off and you look out to 2050 but you kind of miss the bit that between now and 2030 and yeah. you spoke at the uh, start of this discussion about how fast the numbers are changing and I think you mentioned in US dollar terms, $54 a kilowatt hour. Was that for a cell or a pack or I, I'm not quite cell sure what price that we, uh, that we uh, were getting. So we're getting to roughly 54 to 32 at the lower end uh, dollars per uh, kilowatt hours on cell. And what does uh, and if because the industry is EVs at the moment, what does that translate to in terms of a, of a pack price? So it's. Yeah, so it's it's another well, roughly what would it be sixteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars per kilowatt hours on top. Of course, this the, the the pack also gets innovated on, so that would be assuming that there would be not a lot of innovation on the packing. Uh, but so um, let's say roughly conservatively an additional fifteen on top. That's right, and um, and that that cost is uh, lower than a year ago. It is. It is. Um, uh, so the, these are the outlook costs that we're now looking for, for, with for 2030. Uh, the current cost of, of cell prices, I mean, last year, it was uh, around $100 per kilowatt hour. So we're, we're seeing at least a, a halving of battery, uh, battery prices, uh, cell prices over the next, uh, over the next seven years. Um, this is part of our outlook where I think it's kind of funny. Um, when we published this uh, for the first time, we got a lot of like, challenges on like, wow, these are very aggressive numbers. This is, this is going quite low. Um, I think uh, the, the latest announcement, so uh, CATL came out earlier this year, um, as well as a couple of other battery manufacturers in China, to say that probably already by mid-year of this year, they're able to realize $56 per uh, kilowatt hours, uh, mid-year 2024. This is at a pack price, so that means that the sell price is, is, is even lower than that, which basically would put most of these Chinese battery manufacturers already at what we have, our, our 2030 range, or, or even below that. So it's it's one of those interesting stories again of the with the data also keeps catching up with us. Um, uh, we we uh, we had an outlook. We uh, we uh, it was quite bullish, um, but uh, the reality is even more bullish.
Yes, Dan, and I would just say from a from a career spent in forecasting that these things tend to go in waves. You know, you go through periods where it looks like uh, you're too pessimistic and then there will be periods like a year or so ago when it looked like we were too optimistic. Uh, it's just uh, progress doesn't happen in a straight line, In my, as Shakespeare used to say, to the course of true love never did run smooth. Um, uh, but if, if, if I look at just what's driving costs down, I mean, cattle, C-A-T-L, has its blade battery, but what, what do you see in the minuite, in the detail of what's actually driving recent cost reductions? So, I mean, over the past year, it's been, it's been quite clear what, is, what has driven cost reductions, and that's just uh, material prices coming down quite rapidly, right? So, so I think uh, 2022 was one of the, one of the top years for uh, battery material uh, players because prices surged as demand far outstripped supply. And that has led actually to an increase of cost. So from 21 to 22, we actually saw battery uh, prices rise. Uh, and the past year, they have fallen and then they continue to fall at the moment. And that's been a really big driver of cost continue to fall. Going forward, I mean, we are seeing the market at the moment plateauing out. So in terms of prices, uh, I, I, I would personally not suspect, I suspect a lot more in, uh, in, in uh, material price reductions in terms of cost reduction. I think a lot of the announcements that we're seeing coming from China are actually structural changes to the market. The new LFPs that they're putting into the, into the market, they're actually structurally cheaper to make, uh, especially where scale benefits are tremendous in the larger factories that they're building. Uh, so I think uh, at least uh, at least uh, two thirds of this cost decline, I think we should really see as real um, and maybe an additional one third, I could imagine, is also a strategic move by these organizations to to, of course, maintain market shares as, as we see protective policies across the world picking up. So in terms and I don't want to get too bogged down on this, but in terms of the uh, cost reductions over the next few years, and if we assume that materials fall to the uh, hang around their appropriate price, <laughs> which they won't. But if we just assume that, uh, then uh, we're going to get a benefit from scale of production. And I want to come on to the very interesting numbers in your report about how many factories there are. But what about chemistry changes? I mean, we've seen a um, change to lithium iron phosphate away from nickel cobalt technologies. But that that's not a... Um, um, uh, without its drawbacks as well, because lithium ion phosphate batteries have some disadvantages. I mean, I guess well, the question I'm asking is to talk a little bit about the chemistry, if you want to, uh, and, and what you're seeing going forward. But if, if, yeah. I think the major trend, I think that the major trend on chemistry is the, is the switch from the NMC to the, the LFP, right? I think that's the, that's the, the expiring patents uh, leading to an uptick in, in LFP development. That is really driving a large part of the cost down reduction, a large part of the uptake. Um, I think what, what will be interesting to see, and I, I, I don't have a conclusive answer on this, I think this is one of the uncertainties in, in, in the battery outlook, is to what extent different applications will actually see will actually see some sort of a bifurcation in battery chemistry depending on the application so at the moment there is a by and large uh, applicable like cross applicability of these battery technologies and and i think most battery technologies are still being applied to most solutions uh, lithium ion still in stationary storage uh, uh, nmc batteries still in cheaper cars and and i think we might see over the coming like 6 7 years more of a bifurcation between chemistries and their most likely uh, uh, end use, which I think can bo be both a risk and a uh, an opportunity for the industry. The opportunity is obvious, right? You can really start engineering these batteries to be really specific for for your end use. 
The risk is, of course, is that part of the battery cost decline, as we've seen it over the past decades, is, is to some extent also from the uniformity of this industry, that one company actually has a whole portfolio of batteries that all of these uh, researchers actually communicate with each other and share their learning. So bifurcation and splitting up and colonization of these different batteries can also be seen as a, as a risk. So it's, I think one of the things to watch as battery as the battery sector will mature over the next uh, over the next decade, in which direction they pick to go in, in a unified approach or in a, in a bifurcated approach. And, uh, you know, uh, in my history of looking at batteries, uh, we've seen lead acid and then nickel metal hydride um, uh, and nickel cadmium, I think before that, and then various forms of lithium uh, iron and you have pouch cells and cylindrical cells and so on. I mean, you probably haven't had time to look at new uh, chemistries and things like solid state batteries, bigger cells, uh, which have, you know, um, heat issues, uh, sometimes dendrites and things. But do you have any, um, um, you know, if you were, a, <clears throat> I hate to use this word, punter, speculator, is there some new technology that you, from where you sit, looks like it has uh, promise? Um to be honest, I am I am quite bullish on the new uh, uh, semi-solid state CATL battery and uh, and the and the buzz around that. I I think uh, we have some people that are believers and people that are less believers. I think they they have a very solid strategy of sort of cascading from a current batteries into solid state. Um, so solid state lithium, I think, is uh, is uh, is uh, would have my uh, would have my money if uh, if I if I if I'd be a speculator. Uh, but I think it's it's also to a large extent. Um, Again, right, if, if I'd had money and I'd have to pick one, that would be probably it. But if I had had a little bit more money, it's a portfolio play. And I think that's yes. really what we're seeing. It's it's really very hard to tell which of these batteries are actually going to come out here on top. I mean, the new announcement by Northvolt of different like the sodium and nature batteries and stuff like that. It's it's the portfolio play is probably the real winner. So um, I suppose in that sense, if there was an index across, that's the one you should pick. And um, I think uh, one of the uh, findings in your report was that the amount of research as the sector has grown bigger, naturally the amount of research and patents and stuff has grown accordingly. I suppose that's a very good thing, uh, except that when I look at the medical industry, it's often the individual <laughs> rather than the, uh, the, the great mass that, that leads to the breakthrough. But what were your findings about uh, uh, the amount of research going into the industry? Yeah, it's it's tremendous, right? The, if you if you look at the just patent filings uh, today versus as, as little as like seven eight years ago, it's just an or, almost an order of magnitude larger in terms of number of patents filed every year. That means it's just the rate of innovation continues to really run hot in the battery sector, and we're also not seeing any plateauing out of of, of research uh, possibilities in uh, in the battery sector. Um, to your point, right, on who, who owns these patents and what's done with it, I think this is the interesting play that we're also seeing. I mean, this, this, this holds at the societal level between the individual and the rest. It also holds at the geopolitical level between the companies and organizations that hold the patents and the organizations that need to start licensing these patents to actually start building production capacity in their own home countries. I think it's, uh, I think, uh, roughly what will it be? Almost a third of the patents on on uh, on uh, on uh, um, um, battery technology are held by Chinese organizations or Chinese entities. So that means that, and a lot of those are the new inventions, the new pieces of battery innovation. Which means that really, when other nations start to build up their battery production capacity and they want to go for the best of the best, the latest battery uh, battery technology, they will have to start working together with the Chinese organizations to actually get access to their IP. 
So I want to come on to the geopolitical uh, side of things uh, towards the end of this conversation, maybe. But uh, another finding in the report that was of interest to me was the scale up in uh, production capacity. It was only a few years ago that we, Elon Musk was able to talk about a gigafactory and it, it made a difference, right, because, uh, because of scale. But what's happening into manufacturing capacity uh, at the moment? It's really tremendous. I mean, there's there's an overcapacity at the moment, almost of a scale to uh, one to three or one to two. Uh, for every battery that is sold, there's almost there's a capacity to make two, um, which is quite tremendous. And I think that's largely due to the industrial policy that we've uh, that we've seen coming out of uh, out of China. But it's also just not just China as a, as as a nation, but just the Chinese battery companies have been very prescient and looking ahead. Doing their uh, doing their S curve analysis in a very proper way, and then thinking through if we see this huge wave coming of battery demand, how do we actually invest ahead of time? And and to a large extent today, we can move so fast on EVs. So one in five cars sold were EVs last year. My God, it's it's, it's so fast. Uh, to a large extent, that is because of the pressures of the battery manufacturing industry. They have actually invested beforehand, taken a big risk, and that risk at the moment is is really paying off. Yes, uh, I think the the we'll come back to cars, but I just wanted to finish on the on the battery uh, production um, uh, uh, sector scene. So we also have the raw materials. Uh, one of the arguments has been uh, mm-hmm. about whether there will be enough uh, raw materials um, uh, for the scale of batteries that that you and I like to talk about. Uh, and also, I guess, where these raw materials are located. But let's forget about the location. What do you see about the ability of the raw materials, critical minerals industry, to actually produce what's required? Yeah, I, th- I think so. When it comes to battery battery minerals availability, it's it's really two topics. It's the, it's the short-term shortages and the long-term feasibility of actually getting all of these uh, materials out of the ground. And the short term, right? That we've seen some real tightness over the past uh, over the past uh, uh, forty eight months in the battery material space, and that's mainly because the growth has just been stupendous to the extent where most of these mining sectors were not prepared. Like the manufacturing sector, by the way, by the way, was most of these mining sectors were not prepared, had not invested upfront to the extent that the manufacturing sector had done. So they were taken off guard. Price signals were sent to the market. Prices spiked. Investment was intra- attracted. And we now see large corporations, um, uh, even Exxon, the, the large uh, uh, the large fossil company, investing heavily into, into lithium extraction, other critical mineral extraction. And that's also why we see prices now coming down, leveling out to, I think I should put quite rightly, to the correct prices back there. So I think this short-term tightness and, and, uh, and the risk in the short term uh, have, have for now been, uh, have now been abated. I think also what we saw over the past 18 to 48 months in this price spike might also be a very good lesson and I think continues to be a good lesson for the C-suites in these large battery companies, in these large mining companies to realize let's not make this mistake again. So we are seeing very rapid expansion of uh, 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 battery mineral uh, uh, mining. Uh, I think it was BNF that forecasted that I think we'll even in a net zero scenario, we'll still have a little bit of oversupply uh, towards 2027, 20, 28. So that means that in the short term, we'll, uh, so in the scenarios that we typically have are around also the, the speed of a BNF uh, net zero scenario. So that means that in the short term, in the, in the, in the immediate term for the coming years, there, there might be sporadic periods of tightness in certain regions. Uh, but by and large, it, there's, there's very little that would prove that we, we cannot do this. 
Then in the long term, there's a different story, of course. Do, do we actually have the materials? And I think that the, it is maybe twofold. Um, first, I think that the, uh, one of the excellent pieces of analysis coming out of the Energy Transition uh, Commission, uh, Committee on the uh, availability of minerals and the need for minerals in the energy transition very clearly shows what we have about we have enough materials resources out there in the world to fund to, to kind of fund like three energy transitions worth so we can basically do this whole thing three times over and we'd still have some materials left to spare uh, which means that it, there's not there's no shortage at all uh, when it comes to like long-term availability and that gets even better when you start considering the enormous boom of battery recycling that's coming in it might not be infeasible especially when we see strong policy like the eu battery passport and these things coming in it might not be entirely impossible to see that the mining sector actually goes into a boom and starts rising, but almost like a Gaussian curve comes down again afterwards as recycling becomes actually the main way to produce new batteries. And it more becomes almost like a one-off mining expedition by, by humankind, where over the course of 20 years, we mine the materials that we need. And from that point onwards, can just sustain with a very much smaller mining sector and actually just keep recycling to maintain the, the global fleet. Uh, it's very interesting. And speaking as an owner of lithium shares, and Australia has uh, long been a country where we do two things: we we we, we finance uh, projects with our banks, and uh, and we dig stuff out of the ground. Uh, and so the um, uh, the future of the lithium mining industry, and the copper industry, and the graphite, and neomidium, uh, and nickel are all. Uh, things that we think about a lot, uh, but uh, I probably agree with you. I've always thought there was going to be enough lithium. Let me just uh, talk uh, again about the near term uh, as much as the longer term. In the near term, Dan, I think most of the growth is going to be where it was last year. That is, in uh, there's no more dominoes. I mean, we'll get to the dominoes, but really it's EV penetration and stationary storage that are going to be front of mind for everyone over the next couple of years, would you say? Yeah, yeah. If we talk about volume, that's really where probably the volume of growth will lie, primarily from uh, from cars. Uh, stationary storage is picking up quite rapidly. I wouldn't just just yet count out uh, lighter duty trucks as well, um, as they as they as we see pickup trucks in the car segment also picking up. Uh, the logical next step is that you have delivery vans and things like that that can pick up quite quickly. Um, also because these are actors that are much more cost motivated than the typical person that buys a car who also thinks about, you know, how cool is this? How does it look? Uh, what kind of vibe does this car give off? Uh, as an economic actor that just has delivery vans like an Amazon or a FedEx, you're just making the economic calculation. That economic calculation becomes better and better and better for light trucks. So I think that might be, that might be the third sector that we, uh, we really need to pay attention to. Yes, I think uh, light trucks is, is certainly a sleeper. And as you say, it's a, it's a straight commercial uh, decision. On the other hand, the, in the car industry, uh, there are winners and losers, as in every transition. And right now, it seems to me uh, that both the Japanese manufacturers, who for various reasons haven't, uh, have been laggards, and even the Europeans, uh, like your Mercedes and BMW, who haven't really worked out how to do EVs in the way that they probably have seen Chinese companies or Tesla or even the Koreans. And so they, they have the ability to kind of uh, put some sand in the wheels and slow it down a bit if, if they want to, do you think? Yeah, I think this is this has been uh, this is the general trend that we've seen, of course, in forecasts uh, over the past like decade. Is that every time batteries are sort of about to jump sectors, there is a lot of skepticism about the actual role that batteries can, can fulfill. Right, uh, 
way back when, I think it's a 2008 IEA report that talks about car saying probably still about half or two thirds of cars need to come from something else. Maybe it's hydrogen, but batteries won't be able to do it because they won't be able to actually sell into those markets. Uh, and similarly, we're seeing a similar trend in, in light trucks and a similar naysaying of companies. So far, though, and that's that's evidenced by the very sticky learning rates, by the exponential growth that is very steadily, almost very steadily, thirty three percent across the past uh, three decades. We like human ingenuity find a way to in innovate around challenges, but also innovate around naysayers. And I think I think it, what you're highlighting is true, and there's a challenge there. Uh, but at the same time, I'm quite hopeful that uh, we've we've seen this before and we've we've overcome it before. Yes. Yes. Uh, 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 so I suppose the thing is, if the cost, I mean, it's a kind of a codependent thing. You have to keep getting the penetration to get the cost down. And uh, as the costs come down, it, it increases the incentive to consumers. And at the moment, um, when you look at the near term, does your confidence uh, remain high? Not, not, not what you want to happen. We all know what you want to happen and what I want to happen. <laughs> but what do you think actually will happen over the next couple of years? You think it's reasonable to continue to have uh, uh, faith in, in the um, predictive power, if you like, of learning rates and, 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 and what's actually going on? Well, yeah, I mean, if, if this year has proven anything to us is actually that learning rates are too bearish. Uh, the, the, the Chinese manufacturers are going faster, uh, faster than the learning rates. Uh, I, I think in terms of what you, what you mentioned on like, create, like that you need scale to actually continue this learning effect, I think is a very good point. That's why I think I'm very heartened by the fact that almost half of the final battery market that we see, like the long-term battery market, just, uh, just under half of that is cars and cars have decidedly tipped towards EVs and that will just continue to unfold across geographies and that will really drive that size and with that it will drive the cost reduction. So I think now that cars are decidedly across that tipping point and start to accelerate in uptake, that will probably be sort of more than sufficient to actually drive the scale that is needed to drive costs down to a level where these other sectors get attracted to. So even if we have a lot of naysayers across stationary storage and light trucks and heavy trucks and trains and maybe even ships and aviation. Um, there's so much scale that is about to be unleashed in the, from the car sector that this, this learning rate is sticking around for a little while longer. And if we continue down it, we're going to end up with prices of probably closer to $30 per kilowatt hour than 50 by 2030, at which, price, at which point it becomes so incredibly attractive to switch to batteries that I think uh, no one will have a leg to stand on in, uh, in, in the other sectors to not uh, switch to EV. Yes. So I just point out that here in Australia, where we have a huge behind the meter solar industry, like world leading and very low installation costs. But uh, we people who've been looking to put like a, station, a battery in our house have basically seen zero cost reduction in Australia dollars for about a decade now, more or less. Uh, maybe I'm slightly exaggerating. Uh, so I guess you know these things. You see what's happening in cars, but you don't haven't. We haven't seen it penetrate through to the residential stationary storage uh, issue, but we are seeing more penetration uh, at the utility at the station storage. So uh, I guess good. progress. Yeah, um, progress doesn't always go in a straight line. But let me just come on to the to the geopolitical side of it. How strong? is China's position in the battery value chain when I look from EVs right down to raw materials? 
incredibly strong. Right? I, I think we're, we're talking about across the value chain, uh, parts of it, uh, across processing parts of it, a processing part of the value chain, they're almost a 50% across the board, across uh, uh, cathodes, anodes, etc. Uh, the mining sector are incredibly dominant, if not directly in their own country, then through their financing, the actual production of the batteries, and even like, you know, sort of putting wheels in the battery and, and making it an EV, uh, they're also very dominant. So at the moment, China is, is I, I, I would dare I say it, almost a decade ahead on, uh, on, on Western countries. And, and they keep accelerating. So China has uh, really has a lockdown on the global value chain. And it is very likely that it will uh, uh, maintain uh, this for the coming uh, for the coming decade. I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think China's EV installations like fully electric cars last year would have been something like eight to 10 to 12 million. Do you have a number off the top of your head? Yeah, roughly in that range. I don't have the exact number already. And that's probably uh, more like 60, 70% of total global EV sales. Exactly. Roughly, was it uh, uh, about 55%, I believe. So it's not unusual historically for China to have 50% of something, you know, <laughs> whether it's uh, steel production or, or, or coal production or uh, bicycles. I mean, it, it, in that sense, China being half the world's production yeah. is, is not that unusual is it yeah and they're, and they're doubling down on it right i think one of the interesting trends that we're, we're seeing in, in, the, in the geopolitical side is um china had of course they're always their their big three export products like the home appliances furniture and um and uh, clothing those were the big three products that uh, the government strategy was was built around to push push the manufacturing sector on that and and i mean the latest speeches from xi jinping right it's, it's quite clear it is solar panels batteries and evs and if you look at those three, I mean, solar panels, that's basically stuff to fuel or like to power your, your battery with. Then you have the battery itself. And then the third one, EVs, is basically batteries with the wheels around it. It's basically batteries, batteries, batteries as the export product of China. So whilst it's true what you say, it's not, it's not uncommon for China to dominate the manufacturing sector. I think there is a special part, of, uh, a, a special part in the Chinese strategy that is really focused on batteries. So we get away from um, possibly your expertise, but um, it, my question, I suppose, is whether the world can be happy with China being half of it or do they have to do something in response? And the response can be twofold to say, we don't want batteries, <laughs> we're going to do something different or we're going to beat you, we're going to have you know some form of protectionism and uh, nationalism, which of course is on the on the rise globally. Uh, you must have talked to a lot of people about your report. What, what's your sense of how the rest of the world will respond? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. It's a question we get asked quite often. At the moment, what we're mainly seeing is actually that the, um, uh, the Europe clearly woken up after Putin's, uh, the start of Putin's war, uh, as has the United States, is thinking through like insourcing their energy supply. Um, that's at the moment mo mostly motivated by Putin rather than it is by China. And they're, they're thinking through how do we actually make sure that we can supply our, our own energy. Uh, that's, that's, I think, a, a, big, uh, a big driver. Um, what, that, uh, what, we've, what we've seen, though, is in response to Putin's invasion, in enhanced energy security uh, pushes, new battery factories are being built across the, across the West. That actually uh, has not led to many cancellations in China. So we're actually not seeing that this competition is at the moment an exclusionary one. We're actually seeing that China continues to build factories as well. 
And most of these Western factors actually coming on top. At the moment, that leads to more overcapacity, lower battery prices, and just a faster uh, scale-up of, of supply. So good, moment, news, good news for the consumer, uh, ultimately, is the competition. Exactly. It's, it's ultimately what I mean, the trend that we're seeing it right now is, is, is still very much at the level of healthy competition and not unhealthy competition. And I think, I mean, any market, if, if you're not looking at this as countries, but as companies, any market where uh, more than 50% of the market is controlled by one player, it's probably healthy for the consumer if more players get in. And the fact that Europe and the United States are pushing in here is probably going to be better for everyone, including the Chinese, because more competition means more innovation, means uh, lower prices for the end consumer. So, Dan, uh, uh, we've come to, coming to the end of this discussion, which I'm sure could go on for for another hour. But in in the, I presume you've been out uh, marketing the report, or at least that's what I used to do in investment banking research. What's been uh, the the pushback from from the people that you talk to, or the the issues that they they want to focus on? So, I think the main worry that people have. Um, is the is the one on material supply and charging infrastructure, right? Those are the two main bottlenecks that that people keep uh, keep coming back to. So we spoke a little bit already about uh, uh, the mineral supply and how that's that's also just basically a lot of the time people also still kind of living in the news from eighteen months ago, not in today's news. I mean things are uh, updating quite quickly. Uh, hence, so what what was a, an issue a year and a half ago may not be an issue anymore today. Um, the charging infrastructure is another one. It's it's it, that's more sort of a lived experience uh, uh, experience where people say, "I rented an EV car on my holiday because I wanted to do something, you know, good good for the climate whilst I was going on holiday, but I couldn't find any charging infrastructure. Therefore, how can this how can this continue?" Uh, this is another, I think, uh, a, a clear sort of I, I think a fallacy that we currently have in the in the battery story. We're seeing battery infrastructure being built up quite quickly quite rapidly. There are challenges to fast charging infrastructure, but most of the charging will happen in home uh, in home charging situations where people can, can charge their, can charge their uh, uh, EVs decentrally. So we are seeing the market pick up incredibly rapidly. And I think much like with the mineral shortages that we've seen over the past 18 months, we may see some local like charging shortages. But this industry, the charging infrastructure industry, is getting quite mature and quite good at scouting this out. And the moment that these arbitrage spaces will open up, they will jump on it um, and very much uh, make sure that the, that the supply is met. Also, because it's a pretty good margin industry. You put some solar panels down, they're, they're cheap at the moment. You basically get free power and you start charging EVs and, and, and charge a hefty fee. It's a, it's a pretty good business. Um, so we don't see a, a reason for bottlenecks there, but it's been one of those sort of lived experience things where people still feel a little bit afraid of like, if we all switch, will I will I even be able to drive across? I guess in Australia, the distance are much longer than, 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 than in Europe. Will I still be able to drive to you know, see my family and things like that? Yes, no, and that's right. And for apartment dwellers, there's a risk that the existing infrastructure can't actually support uh, the power needs of um, uh, EVs, you know, generally speaking, a lot of switchboards will need to be replaced in older apartment buildings. And of course, right now, there's a kind of a fire concern in Australia. Uh, you know, for every million batteries, there might be one fire and all the, it's the fire that makes the news and the television <laughs> and all the rest don't. But nevertheless, that, that drives public perception. Uh, Dan, look, it's been incredibly interesting to talk about uh, your views uh, largely align with mine, which was why I was so interested, but you've expressed them so much more clearly. And it's a great report that I'd encourage everyone to read and to take an interest in the Batteries X report, which is part of uh, what is the X series that RMI is, is doing at the moment? 
Yeah, so it's part of our exchange uh, series where we have uh, two previous entries also on EVs and on uh, electricity and, and, and more to come uh, this year. It's where we focus on exponential change in, uh, in the energy system. Uh, so I'd encourage uh, our listeners to take an interest in, and read the report for themselves. Um, you know, they've seen some. Uh, and I look forward to uh, talking again uh, sometime in the future, Dan. Thanks very much again for talking to Energy Insiders. Super. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And that was uh, Dan Waters from uh, RMI. Um, great interview, David. Um, fascinating to see um, ba- batteries. I mean, the funny thing about batteries is just that it just sort of you know continues to confound all expectations, really. And if you just you don't have to go back very far, as I think I observed this week. Um, you know. So, so Giles, that that was the point of the interview. If you know, if you were to summarise quickly what came through, it's that the en- uh, energy density of batteries is increasing all the time. Uh, the cost is coming down faster than anyone predicted. Uh, the growth of batteries is a lot; it continually exceeds expectations, as you just mentioned. And as the cost and density cost comes down and the size gets smaller, they get into new applications. Uh, there aren't any significant uh, problems with uh, with raw materials. Uh, either, I mean, you obviously get short-term and long-term fluctuations. And essentially, uh, hang on for the ride. It won't be a straight line, but we, we're in for uh, uh, plenty of growth in batteries to, over the next decade. Huge growth. And, well, also what I was um, probably alluding to was just sort of the application to the grid and what they can actually do. And just the comfort, um, the understanding of the operators and the network um, owners um, and the regulators and the policymakers of what batteries can actually do, their role on the grid, their multiple different functions, you know, whether it be network support, system services, or just plain old arbitrage and even now longer duration storage. So it's... um, it really is quite fascinating, and it's probably been, as you mentioned at the start of the uh, podcast, um, the healthiest part of our new renewables transition. They're certainly seeing a heck of a lot of investment, and I think this week, as we sort of bring ourselves back to Australia and, and, and talking about the news of the week, we saw what was described as the um, first sort of non-recourse financing and the first financing for a four-hour battery with a Melbourne um, Renewable Energy Hub, which is... Um, a uh, well, one part of that battery is a four-hour battery, 800 megawatt hours, partly owned by Equus and the new um, State Electricity Corp or SEC. So that was a reasonably interesting event. And um, David, a bunch of other things going on over this past week since um, we last talked. Um, AGL results. What can you tell me about them? Because that's when I was away, so I'm not really a full bottle. Well, AGL reported a, a strong set of results. Uh, there'd been some murmuring, and the share price had been weak ahead of the results. There'd been some murmuring from the investment banks that they were going to be at the lower end of expectations. Uh, but in fact, they did uh, very well. Uh, uh, and I, I wrote a note suggesting that for the next couple of years, the cash flow would be strong, but it was a question of what they were going to do with it. It was interesting to read that uh, one of the wind farms that recently got through the New South Wales Planning Department, uh, Bowman's Creek, I think it is, they're not really planning to hit financial final investment decision on that for a couple of years yet. So AGL certainly in no rush to to do anything in the way of wind and solar as far as I can see. And I would observe that when the high prices that we're current, you know, AGL is benefiting now from the high prices of 2022. Their results were uh, heavily 
diminished uh, because they had to sell electricity and buy electricity when prices were high, but they couldn't sell it at the high price. But now, as consumers are well aware, those higher prices have been passed on to them and AGL is getting that benefit. But if we look forward, one of the most exciting things to catch my eye when I was updating my website this week uh, was that um, the futures prices seem to have really cracked since Christmas. It's like everyone came back uh, and decided well, we can't maintain this fiction of high prices anymore. Let's trade them down a bit. And they've all fallen $10, $15 a megawatt hour, which I think uh, the politicians will probably find uh, a, a good thing. Indeed, indeed. And look, we can expect um, Origin Energy results um, later on this week. Is there anything particularly we can expect out of them? I mean, apart, I guess, from um, some sort of indication about erraring. One of the things that uh, wasn't made clear in the AGL result was this uh, support for Loyang A. Of course, it's going to need quite a bit of support tonight, considering it's not uh, had to go offline. It's not working. (laughs) It's not working. Uh, But the fact is, uh, I think the Victorian government uh, can be criticised, although it deserves praise in many ways, but it's providing a lot of secret support down there to uh, to Yalorn and now to LYA. And I, I don't know, Linter, which owns LYB, must feel a bit unhappy that it's not getting any support. Uh, or maybe it is, who knows? Um, and we don't know the quantity of it. So I think it's very unfair that uh, these companies are getting a capacity payment and yet they're competing against other generators that aren't getting a capacity payment. But I mean, all the coal guys would probably complain about the support that wind and solar gets, so maybe it's tit for tat. Now, the reason I mention that is we come into Origin, all the debate is going to be about how profitable Origin is uh, and whether it needs capacity support. One of the things that I think has become obvious uh, to everyone is that Origin itself has done absolutely nothing, big fat zero, to, at least in public, to replace the energy that's coming from Araring. So it really wouldn't matter if there was a lot of new wind and solar around the place. Uh, Origin itself hasn't written the contracts, to, to re- and therefore I think that I, th- I, I might be wrong. It's easy, so easy to be wrong, uh, but my guess is they won't be able to close uh, Araring when they say, irrespective of what the actual energy market situation is. So they might have an economic incentive then to actually sort of keep it open or at least two, two, two units open for another couple of years. I think that's right. And then they'll get uh, capacity payments um, uh, probably from the New South Wales government, even as the actual to, to cover the fact that their fixed costs will stay constant, but their operating rate is going to come down over time as the new uh, renewables start to hit the market. It's rooftop solar. One of the things you saw when uh, we were analysing the um, ISP for 2024 and comparing it to 2022, by the time you get out to 2050, there's something like uh, 60 gigawatts, I think, of uh, rooftop solar that's supposed to be coming through, uh, as opposed to like uh, uh, 40 uh, in in the old version. I mean, my point here is that the uh, rooftop solar uh, side of things is forecast to get a lot stronger, not weaker. But it's very hard for companies like Origin and AGL to actually write contracts on that. I mean, you can put the batteries in place and charge them out, out for free at midday lunch, but you can't really write a contract to Woolworths and hope to buy the electricity at lunchtime and sell it to Woolworths on a 24-hour, 7 basis, if you see what I mean. It's not really a financially... Uh, particularly attractive way of doing things. So, you know, well, anyway, no, bottom no. line here is... There you go. 
bottom line. Oh, no, we're waiting for it now, David. You, you said the bottom line here. No, is. no, no, no. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. No, you, ca- you yes, can't. I, you no, know, no, I'm sorry. You can't say the bottom line here is and then just walk away from it. I'm sorry. Well, the bottom line is, as I said before, Araring's not in a position to close, and and the surplus generation at lunchtime is not particularly suited to contracting. So, they need to write new, longer-term contracts. Okay, well, it's going to be interesting to see how that's sort of received by the industry and also politically because um, that might actually be sort of portrayed as a bit of a failure of the renewable transition and so God forbid we've seen so much complete nonsense um, about renewables and EVs and everything that the, the, the coalition has seems to have sort of um, set its, um, you know, um, I mean... I, I, they're as bad as they ever have been, I think. I mean, you talked about rooftop solar and the increase in the ISP. Um, if you listen to the coalition, they'd say, well, that's all we should be building is rooftop solar and homes and long highways and things like that. And none of this sort of large-scale wind and large-scale solar and batteries and these newfangled electric vehicle things and goodness know what. It's um, it's actually quite depressing. Giles, there, there, there was a, um, as, you, as, as many people will be aware, there was a protest or a, a gathering in Canberra uh, which was essentially anti-wind and anti-solar, utility solar. I thought it was the most uh, disappointing thing I've seen this year to see Ted O'Brien was reported to be at that uh, that function. Indeed. Uh, I mean, the Liberal Party broadly used to be a party that um, stood for a lot of stuff. Uh, but now it's not its own party. It's just bossed by the Queensland Nationals. I mean, Peter Dutton is one of them, uh, national, Liberal National. Uh, and, and, you know, their policies just are not what the people where I live, which is uh, actually support in as a general no. statement. Well, no. Well, in fact, their policy is just basically based around the interests of sort of legacy industry, be it in um, electricity, uh, be it in the car industry, um, be it in the oil industry, in the coal industry and what have you. Um, speaking so of the Giles, car industry... Uh, uh, yes. Yes, go on. No, no, no you do go. No, me, me go. Okay, I'll go this time. Uh, yes, well, the National Vehicle Admission Standard it also came out last week. Finally, there was a big wait for this. Um, and they've seemed to, they've, they've provided three options, A, B, and C. Um, I can't remember which one's which now, but I think A is the um, is the very ambitious one. Or well, well, there's three options anyway. They've chosen B, which is in the middle, in between what the EV um, advocates wanted, really, really tough standards, very, very quickly imposed, and with what the legacy car industry want, wanted, which is just basically next to nothing, um, super credits and what have you. So they come around down the middle it's interesting the EV industry seems to be reasonably pleased with this um, they think this is quite doable uh, it's realistic there's a few people who might like to see things sort of you know slam, aim slightly higher go slightly quicker I think the big fear is that there might be some sliding because of the pressure from the car industry lobby. But what's really interesting is that, you know, the FCAI, which is the car industry lobby, has sort of been threatened to repeat some sort of mining tax and use this as like a carbon tax and wheel or a car tax or a ute tax, as Peter Dutton wants to describe it. But there's even, um, you know, there's, uh, there isn't even agreement within that, that car lobby because um, some car makers like Hyundai and um, VW, I understand, um, don't support this sort of um, position. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. 
But my goodness me, I mean, you sort of see the you know the level of it. If, I mean, there's only about three hundred to five hundred people bothered turning up at the protest in Canberra against wind and and and, and protesting against about anything else, including vaccines and goodness knows what what else. But just some of the reach of the social media and the disinformation campaigns that we're seeing. I mean, there was some ridiculous thing about an NRMA remote charging station, which is powered by solar on the battery and you know, it has diesel as a backup there, um, which hasn't actually been turned on yet to sort of charge any cars. But there was a video made suggesting that it was, which was viewed by three million people it was actually debunked in um the senate estimates this this week but three million people looked at that video on on instagram or wherever it was held i mean there's just so much information going around funded i'm presuming by you know these various networks the atlas networks and sort of you know some billionaire sort of fossil fuel people um, just sort of um, an extraordinary disinformation campaign. So this is the battle that um, I think we're sort of that's being faced for sort of you know the the um, yeah the you can fool vote. all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool them all of the time. Look, I think in the end, Chris, uh, you know, I'm a policy person. I look at the policies that are taken uh, and make my decisions on that. And and I feel Chris Bowen has shown some guts and some. Uh, uh, that's what some stomach, you know. He's prepared to introduce a new policy. It's a very obvious policy to introduce, really, uh, uh, and I think he's had a long time to prepare for it, and I think it'll go pretty well. And in the end, I think uh, um, the government is not there to do nothing, no matter what they may say. You're there to, to move the country forward, and that needs new policies, and I'm pleased to see one. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, and I'd agree with that. And it was good to actually see Chris Bowen turn up at the sort of the fully charged Everything Electric Conference or Expo in Sydney um, last weekend. And interestingly, Paul Fletcher from the Liberals also did too, and he sort of voiced his support for the new vehicle emission standards. So there are a couple of reasons. That, still... That's good of Paul. I, I, it, it... Well, yes, he well, was on a committee. He was on a committee long ago that was quickly shot down. That was going to introduce those emission standards years ago. Uh, yes, I, I, uh, I remember that moment. Josh Frydenberg um, sort of whipped out because he saw a, a nasty headline of the Daily Telegraph, and he sort of pointed to it and says, well, "We can't do that. Look, look, look at the headline." You just think, "Goodness sake, what are you doing and why are you here?" But um, he's no longer here, and who knows what he's Giles, doing. Giles, we've so. taken up a lot of people's uh, time already. What, what else have you got for me? No, oh, look, I think that's about it because I think we've taken up enough of the time. So um, that's all good. Um, yes, look, I'd um, look. Thanks very much for doing that interview. Um, uh, about the battery uh, exchange from RMI, that was um, that was really great. Um, we're getting our other podcasts rolling out. There's a great interview um, on Switched On um, this week, and uh, do check out that. That's looking at sort of electrification, and um, it's a particularly interesting interview. And look, just like to thank our listeners. Um, you may have noticed also we've had a bit of a redesign of the Renew Economy website, so very keen to get your it's feedback It's very busy, on that. Giles. It's very busy. If you want, if you want my uh, feedback, uh, uh, which you probably don't. I will actually quickly mention uh, uh, one other thing is that I've come to the conclusion that the capacity investment scheme is going to lower investment uh, electricity prices, and it's going to do that for the very simple reason that it's going to reduce risk. It's going to take some of the risk of very low prices off the table and therefore the cost of capital will fall and therefore uh, prices will fall. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a good theoretical reason. 
And if you want to read more of um, David Leach's um, pontifications, um, his excellent articles can be found on our very busy website, new website, um, under editor's picks and sort of commentary as well. So do look out for that. Thanks very much for our um, sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing and continued support. And we'll be back again possibly as soon as later this week, but won't promise anything, possibly early next week with another edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Uh, hello, uh, this is Giles Parkinson back again. Uh, just to correct a, um, something that David said about Ted O'Brien speaking at the rally for renewables. He didn't actually speak at the rally itself. He spoke at the same time inside um, Parliament House and House Representatives, but, but said pretty much the same thing as uh, David described. So I just wanted to make that uh, clarification. Bye for now.